This is El Paisano Media, and you're listening to EPM Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rio Hondo's Pretty Neat Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Ramirez, and in this episode, we're talking about pop culture beasts from the east yeah so we're going to be talking about specifically hong kong cinema now we kind of set this up last episode when i left off with that little itty bitty cliffhanger hopefully you guys liked it i i sure did i'm really excited whenever i do these but yeah we're going to be talking about Hong Kong cinema. So I have some stuff up right here on my computer, so I apologize if you hear me like clickety clacketing in the background, but hopefully it really doesn't affect the uh, podcast too much. Anyways, so Hong Kong cinema and its relevance to what we were talking about, I feel like can be encapsulated really, really well with a specific genre of movie. And we're going to talk about this specific genre. <laughs> really, it's not necessarily a specific genre, but it's um, it's an entire cultural thing. Um, I was watching this uh, documentary where they were talking about it, and they said that it was almost as if two cultures were speaking to each other through their art. There was a lot of give and take um, between these two cultures being uh, the West, uh, general, generally speaking, like English-speaking nations and the East. Um, specifically, in this case, we're going to be talking about Hong Kong cinema. So I'm just going to kind of hop right into it. Um, I guess where I really wanted to start was like early Hong Kong cinema. We're looking at stuff that's, I want to say, like pre-World War II, uh, post-World War II, really centralized in that era of like 1940s to 1950s, 1960s, um, we had the Shaw Brothers, which was this, which was like essentially the like powerhouse of Hong Kong cinema. These guys were pop culture at the time. These guys were making like these really vibrantly uh, technicolored, like uh, in real color. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you guys watch like old movies or old TV shows, but like the very vibrant old school color uh, television. They were making movies that were based on um, popular Chinese musicals, um, popular Chinese like folk folk tales, uh, things like that. But something that they really started to tap into, which was really cool, was they started to make action films, essentially. Um, the classic kung fu movie, basically, was birthed from the Shaw brothers. They were the ones that started it. And this came with its own sort of uh, vernacular, if you will. Um, Culturally speaking, I guess, uh, there was sort of a resistance, at the time at least, to having a male, like, open the show. <laughs> that That's a weird way to put A male main character. But, like, in these movies, in these films, uh, the main character is a little bit different, I think, than you would think of, like, the traditional main character in sort of, like, Western cinema. Um, they're more... 
on the journey with the person watching. It's hard to really put into words, but there definitely is a different feeling for the main characters in these films than there is as opposed to like a lot of like Western um, movies. But I, I can't really put into words this this feeling that I'm trying to express. But it's it's sort of uh, an understanding, I guess, that you get when you watch these movies. Maybe it's just that I've watched enough of them that I kind of understand like you know the ebb and flow of, of things, and it's a vibe that I get. But yeah, anyways, uh, there was a bit of a resistance to having a, a male lead, and as far as I can tell, this sort of like resistance came. Uh, from like, oh, you know, you don't want your wife, you know, being like, oh, he's so handsome or something. I don't know how true that is. It's a bit, it's basically hearsay, but that's what I've heard. But what this did is it gave uh, women the lead in these uh, movies. And this was very different to the West, obviously, this was very different to the West, but it also created its own, like like I said, subculture uh, and pop cultural vernacular. Uh, so you had these fight scenes in these movies, and they were heavily influenced by dance and sort of like the flowing uh, um, uh, movements of traditional dance um, and you know classical dance. And this was a very obvious, I guess, and sort of like natural evolution away from the uh, typical Shaw Brothers film, which at the time was, you know, like I said before, at the time it was primarily um, more like classical based on, uh, you know, folklore and folk tales, lots of like dancing and stuff. And so like that sort of naturally progressed, uh, like I said, a lot of communication between the arts. It sort of naturally progressed into this sort of like um, highly choreographed, uh, very well put together fight scene that was expressed in in, uh, these early Shaw Brothers movies. But what that did is it moved on eventually to, and I'm going to be trying to like encapsulate a lot of this and then move forward really fast. So forgive me if I don't really like focus on anything too much, but we have like a lot to go through. And this isn't necessarily like the points that I wanted to focus on. I really wanted to get into more um, the cultural conversations between the West and the East that uh, came as part of these shows and uh, Hong Kong cinema as a whole and then I'll touch a little bit on like some of my favorite aspects of it and some of the weirder parts of it but we'll we'll get to that (laughs) sorry I'm I'm explaining stuff to you when you know we're gonna learn about it together Uh, anyways so from the Shaw brothers um, eventually what comes to split off from them is Golden Harvest and this is where we get I guess sort of what to me at least, stands out as the quintessential Hong Kong cinema uh, kung fu movie, right? Like, we're talking about stuff like uh, Fist of Fury, uh, or The Big Boss. Um, We're talking Bruce Lee. We're talking gangs of dudes just standing outside against other gangs of dudes and duking it out in the street. And so, like, this also shifted that cultural... Uh, that subcultural uh, pop culture sorry I keep saying subculture but it's pop cultural vernacular away from um, the sort of I guess 
while the movies did continue to be highly choreographed and there definitely was a continued evolution away from those classical films that was seen with the Shaw brothers um it's sort of like now with uh <laughs> Golden Harvest it pushed forward more into the aggression of it you had movies where peeper peeper where peeper let's take a breath here right uh you had movies where people were just pouring blood everywhere right uh you had movies where dudes were fighting with like axes stuck in their abdomen and they were like fighting people off um and then if I'm sure a lot of people listening have probably watched Enter the Dragon, um, which would, or, uh, it's wild. Like it, it, it is, uh, the quintessential Bruce Lee film and it's, it sort of marked the changing of this trend. And again, like I said, I'm going to be kind of like pushing through this really, really fast. So who was... Bruce Lee, and what importance did he have to Hong Kong cinema and its relationship to the uh, the West as a whole? So Bruce Lee uh, was more than just a movie star. If that wasn't obvious enough, he brought this. So he wasn't he wasn't a um, he was Chinese, but he was more than just Chinese. He was a, he was a mixed race. So he was sort of out, out of place in both the West and the East, you know, and Hong Kong as a whole sort of like represented that out of placeness, but even there he wasn't necessarily accepted. So in his films, he kind of shifted that cultural vernacular to be something that's sort of understandable to everybody. Um, he spoke English, obviously, but he also was like a phenomenon in the West. Uh, he he was great. Like people really were magnetized toward him. He was a cult of personality almost. Uh, everybody knows his famous speech where he's like a be like water. Water can flow and it can crash. Like every everybody knows that for a reason because he was a, a cultural phenomenon. Um, with movies like. Uh, well, he first of all, he was in um, Green Hornet as Cato, and then moving on to like The Way of the Dragon and Enter the Dragon, um, he really did start to leave his mark on the cultural uh, vernacular. And I think one of the coolest ways that this was represented in like most obvious ways, especially if you aren't from the West, one of the most obvious ways that he did this was by making an enemy out of the Japanese, basically. Uh, this is, again, post-World War II. The Chinese saw the Japanese as, like, oppressors. So his films oftentimes depicted the the Chinese as, like, the underdog, right? Like, he was the underdog, essentially, fighting against um, these Japanese oppressors. And like I said, obviously he was a cultural phenomenon and like a pop cultural phenomenon in the West, but in the East at the same time, he helped to shift and, and that vernacular. Um, this was the same time that you had, uh, you know, world, not world wars, but like worldwide 
proxy wars going on and um, the continued shift of culture into like a resistance. You had like the hippie movement and stuff like that going on in the West and in here in the East. I say here in the East as if I'm in China, but like in the East, um, you had, you know, that shift from like, yeah, you know, uh, we don't want to be oppressed kind of thing. So he sort of played on that by not reaching necessarily towards like propaganda, but pushing towards that spirit of nationalism, which, you know, you can have your own opinions about, but regardless, it's something that's very similar to something that's done in the West, you know, um, that sort of, you know, why are we going to be oppressed kind of thing, you know, fighting the oppressor. There's a very Western sentiment, in my opinion, um, that he was expressing through his movies. Uh, something that comes to mind specifically is, I, I think of, um, I forget what movie it was exactly, but he's going to fight a bunch of karate fighters, which if you don't know, karate is a Japanese originated martial art. Um, and he was going to fight a, a bunch of karate fighters in one of their dojos. And they had a sign that called, um, Chinese people, the sick men of Asia. And he, he takes it down and he breaks it and he says, we are not sick men. So again, I, I feel like that might do a better job of expressing the sentiments of of uh, the the actions and the overall uh, cultural vernacular that he was affecting. Um, but yeah, going forward from Bruce Lee, I just wanted to focus a little bit on Bruce Lee because he's a really big part of this, and he was one of the bigger impacts on the West. But moving on from him, we obviously have. Uh, Jackie Chan movies. <laughs> so that's immediately what I think of. And Jackie Chan was my initial introduction to Hong Kong cinema and uh, Kung Fu movies and all that. But we'll talk about him later because right now we have a lot to cover as far as the relation all of this stuff had to the West. So while a lot of this stuff was going on, um, there were basically like what I would consider, I, I mean, what I would describe as dollar cinema in New York that were taking these films, uh, dubbing them over or adding soundtracks to them or just doing generally tomfoolery to them, right? Uh, I remember hearing that one of the movie, like um, one of the guys who had owned a bunch of the theaters in New York had uh, three of these kung fu movies that had been dubbed over with the Shaft theme. <laughs> so, um, like I said, a lot of tomfoolery with these movies was going on in the West. Initially, a lot of the movies we were getting from the Shaw Brothers, as well as movies we were getting, I think, uh, later later on, um, we were getting from um, Golden Harvest. Uh, you know, they kind of weren't necessarily... Uh, respected in the same way that they were, you know, back in the East, here in the West. They, they, there was a lot that needed to be changed and a lot that we were already getting movies that were like cut up or movies that we can use in a certain way or things like that. Or how are you going to re redo it? Or can we fix this? And it, there was a lot of focus on money in 
the West when it came to these movies. In a way, that's sort of like hard to remove. Whereas, like when you focus about, sorry, (laughs) when you focus on these movies with only the point of view as like somebody from China or just like the Eastern market as a whole, yes, there is money. Of course, money is always involved in film, but at the same time, you could remove yourself from it almost because. It's so focused on the cultural vernacular. And these movies, even though they're action movies or they're, you know, there's violence and stuff, it it all had a a meaning and an expression of what was going on during the time. In the West, though, um, all of that uh, nuance has kind of gone out the window. So all that's left is the money, unless you're a minority, in which case you have new heroes. So you couldn't see there, but I was wiggling my hands all over the place because it it seems obvious almost if, you know, you're growing up nowadays that uh, you would have these heroes, but that's not necessarily the case. And it wasn't necessarily the case back then, at least not initially. But once these movies got to the theaters in New York, the main demographic of these theaters were inner city kids, uh, minorities of all kind, and they deeply, very, very, very deeply and very quickly affected the subculture of the time. These old Hong Kong movies were now a new aspect of cultural vernacular in the inner cities, and one of the coolest ways that this is seen is with the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> now, I feel so nerdy saying the Wu-Tang Clan because everybody knows Wu-Tang Clan, it, well, I, I can't say the rest of that, at least not on a school podcast, but you know the rest. So yeah, Wu-Tang Clan. Super, super, super influenced by Hong Kong cinema. Their entire style, their whole steez, their whole themes, the idea of like a uh, 35 Chambers, uh, you know, you had these sort of interludes, not only with them, but also with uh, later the Fugees, you know, these small interludes that that are very, very similar to these, these dubbed over um, tracks on these movies. And that, that's not the only thing that was really influenced it. General pop culture was really influenced by it. You know, people saw dollar signs with these movies and they tried to make their own, but they kept casting white guys <laughs> as the, 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 the Chinese main characters. And it was really weird, but it, you know, still that cultural conversation was continuing. Um, but really, the most impressive and I think the most obvious and really the most interesting conversation, I think, was its conversation with minority groups. Uh, again, going back to Bruce Lee, which is somebody that I really wanted to focus on in this first episode. He was a hero to the downtrodden. Like I said, his movies focused on fighting the oppressor, on fighting the big guy, on fighting the man. And that spoke to a lot of these inner city communities, a lot of minority communities, a lot of otherwise downtrodden communities. 
Bruce Lee became a figure amongst my peers for reasons that we didn't realize necessarily, but the generations before us understood. Now, Bruce Lee as a whole is a cultural icon, obviously, for his martial arts prowess, his movies, all that. But, suffice to say, he specifically stands out in minority communities. And for the longest time, I didn't understand why. Me, myself, I'm named after his son. And it's confusing at first. You know, yeah, he's a cultural icon, but, you know, you might think maybe it's only because... His movies are cool and people really like him, but in reality, there is an entire aspect underneath that that isn't necessarily as obvious today as it was back then. That being the aforementioned fighting underdog, fighting the oppressor. And he was a hero to a lot of these people. I think oftentimes uh, when it comes to this subject, and I'm sorry, I'm swallowing a lot because I have to burp again, but I think again of, uh, Joey Diaz when he talks a lot about like growing up in New York around this time and how a lot of like, uh, black people were opening up dojos and, uh, there, he often talks about the immigrant mentality and he, he always mentions Bruce Lee whenever he brings that up, the immigrant mentality, um, the fighting, the oppressor. And I feel like he, he, being somebody who's constantly telling stories and always saying stuff really is a good example of how much these films affected these communities. And like I said, if he's not a good enough example, just go listen to Wu-Tang. Really, just look up Wu-Tang at all, and you'll see how influenced they were by these old Hong Kong cinema movies. Even more than that, though, it's another interesting and really almost hardly talked about aspect of this relationship of two cultures talking to one another is breakdancing. So, breakdancing. What does this have to do with Hong Kong cinema? Well, that documentary I was watching, the one whose name I have completely forgotten because it is 12.48 in the morning, it talked about how these inner city kids who were going to see these movies eventually started like they would go with their friends and they'd be like hey you know um we're gonna try to learn these moves so if you go back and you watch some of these movies and remember how i said a lot of these movies were heavily choreographed and originally they were essentially just dances well that trend that communication between these cultures brought that aspect of dance back um, really overall the entirety of my style is better than your style really was founded in these Hong Kong cinema and transferred over to these breakdance styles you know a big aspect if you know anything about breakdance culture and like the subculture of like breakdancing and and all of that a lot of it was that sort of like you front with your crew it's you in the center and like two of your homeboys on the side and you guys are like dancing and and my style is better than your style and it's a lot stylistically even on the surface a lot that's really similar in like uh this i use the word vernacular a lot but it really is this it's very similar with uses the same 
words almost. Not not gen- not really the words like how I'm talking to you, but it it speaks in the same language if that makes sense as these Hong Kong cinema movies. But aside from that, even um, you have styles that were directly influenced by these movies. Like I said, they were essentially stealing moves from these movies and doing them while they were breakdancing. Um, there was one specifically that I remember them talking about where they would drop low and then pop back up and punch almost like they were fighting for reals. Um, suicide dives were something that was influenced by these movies. Um, you had a lot of like flips and kicks again, almost like Capoeira that were again, influenced by these movies. These movies transferred these dance moves over to the West and subsequently also that culture of breakdancing transferred over to the East. And that is where we're going to end this episode off. I know, a shorter episode. Very information dense because the beasts from the East are something that can't just be covered in one episode. But I hope you found the information I presented in this episode pretty neat. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye.